Brian McClanahan Show, episode 398. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. program very glad to be here don't forget to follow me on twitter like my facebook page and subscribe to my youtube page where you can watch this podcast you can find all those social media accounts on my webpage brianmcclanahan.com that's b-r-i-o-n mcclanahan.com while you're there give me an email address i'll give you a free ebook forgotten founders and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly you can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com mcclanahanacademy.com it's always free to enroll you get a free class when you do enroll 10 myths of american history and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You also get a coupon in your email after you enroll. So it's a great win-win situation. We do have a new class coming up within a week or two, and it's going to be the first part of a four-part series on the Constitution. You're going to want this because it is going to be called the Originalist Papers. And what I'm going to do in that particular class is go through original intent. I'm going to give you evidence from the documents themselves, and we're going to talk about it on everything that we have about original intent. This is going to be a really awesome class, and I think that uh, it's going to change your mind if you're on the fence about original intent and what it actually means. So get on there. That class is coming out within the next couple of weeks. If you're a McClanahan Academy subscriber, you're going to know about it first. You're going to get the best deal. If you're not, you're going to find out about it later, and you won't get quite as good of a deal. So it's a win-win to get on there. Also, you can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on that support tab at the top of the page. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get a Brian McClanahan book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. And, of course, I've got a lot of great books. The newest one, Southern Scribblings, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. That's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. So get out there and get Southern Scribblings. Get a book plate if you want my autograph. I've got all kinds of other cool books too, but that is their most recent. Also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It was asked why I put the snake on the logo. Well, it's because it goes back to the Gadsden flag, right? So I mean, that's where the snake comes from. So that's part of it. It's a cool logo, by the way. And, of course, you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great website. All kinds of great ways to support the show. Share it around on social media. Like it wherever you are um, you know, on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Do those kind of things to get people thinking locally and acting locally. Now, I want to talk about a particular topic today that's it's a combined topic in, in a couple of different ways. We're going to talk about the presidency and also the Supreme Court, the federal court system. What's really interesting and happening today, we've seen a reversal of what was going on in the 1950s and 60s. So within 50 years, six, 60, 50 to 60 years, I should say, we've seen a complete reversal of how people on the, on the right and the left thought about these two branches of government. At the heart of all of this, though, is the Congress, because the Congress is really the culprit in so much of what has gone wrong in American politics. So back in the 1960s, you had a push in the late 60s into the early 70s to undo the imperial presidency. This had to do with Richard Nixon 
It was thought the executive branch was off the rails, that it needed to be reined in. The executive branch did not have any oversight, any control. And of course, when you get to the Watergate hearings and you have Sam Irvin of North Carolina as a, as a hero to the American population, I mean, Sam Irvin, left and right, was a hero. Now, of course, you had people on the right who were defending Richard Nixon, but his defenders were few and far between by the end of that particular process. And of course, Richard, Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace. Now, Gerald Ford pardoned him, which was not very popular among the American public. And when I wrote Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, I talked about Richard Nixon as one of those nine who did. In fact, one of the 13. There's 13 people in that part of the book. One of those nine who did. And of course, if you listen to Pat Buchanan, he would say that Richard Nixon was on point. Richard Nixon was always very conservative. The policies, though, don't fit it. Richard Nixon was uh, presided over an administration that was corrupt. And not just that, all of the policy proceed, all the policies coming out of the Nixon administration, all the things that he did, when you look at some of the most egregious things that have happened in American government in the last 40 years, Nixon was behind a lot of it. The regulatory agencies, affirmative action, some of the things that have happened that we would look back at and say, these are bad policies, if you're on, if you're on the right. And so uh, Nixon was certainly despised by the left, though, and he could never get this. He could never figure this out. Why did the left hate him so much when all of his policies seemed to be in line with what the left wanted? Well, it's because they didn't really care. They just wanted Nixon out of the way. And so their commitment at that point was to reigning in the imperial presidency. Now, of course, the left didn't mind the imperial presidency so much when it was Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman doing the damage, or even Lyndon Johnson or John F. Kennedy. But when you put a Republican in office, and it looked like uh, you know, Nixon was very popular in 1972, won in a crushing landslide in 72. You couldn't get rid of this guy. Then you had Gerald Ford. Then you had Jimmy Carter, who was kind of a blip. But then you went to Ronald Reagan. So and then George H.W. Bush. And it looked like for a time that the Republicans were going to control the executive branch. The Democrats might control the Congress, but the Republicans were going to con- control the executive branch. And it appeared like that was their side of government, the executive. And then we got Bill Clinton. But then, of course, you got George W. Bush. And so you had this back and forth, and we had Obama, then Trump. You had this back and forth now for the last, say, 30 years of American history. And so what's interesting is the left has dropped their commitment to reigning in the imperial presidency. You've got Joe Biden now issuing more executive orders in the first couple of weeks of his administration than any other president combined in the last, say, four administrations. Now, Biden's issued over 30 executive orders. Trump averaged about 55 a year. So did Obama during their time in office. So this was not unusual, but I think we're going to see a lot more out of Biden. You're probably going to see, well, I mean, I would think by the time his first year is over, you're going to see close to 100 executive orders by the Biden administration, particularly since they don't think they can get anything done in the Congress. And of course, Biden pledged at one point that he was going to work with the Congress. That's simply not going to happen. We've seen reconciliation now used for the COVID relief package. They are going to go in and nuke any ability of the minority to oppose legislation. And they think they can do this right now because they have the upper hand in terms of demographics. They think they can win and hold the Congress anytime they want, and they're going to win the presidency hands down, I think, moving forward because of what they're trying to do behind the scenes. 
Now, I wouldn't be so sure about that. But certainly, right now, they're just going to go in and try to force their agenda across the board. So they've dropped all pretenses of being opposed to unconstitutional executive orders, to the imperial presidency, to ruling with pen and a phone. During Obama, they didn't care about that either. Obama administration, they didn't care about ruling with a pen and a phone. It's just when Trump was in office for four years, they had a real problem with this. But this shows you how fluid this can actually be. Now the right is running around throwing a fit about the imperial presidency. They didn't care when Trump was in there issuing executive orders. And I mentioned this back in 2016. I think I did a show on it. What if I was president? What I would do? And people said, well, what about using the pen to get rid of bad executive orders with executive orders? This is what Biden is saying he's doing. He's getting rid of bad executive orders with executive orders. So what's to stop the next president coming in using executive orders to get rid of those executive orders? The problem is executive orders are unconstitutional. You know, when you look at the early administrations, you hardly had any executive orders in the first, up until Lincoln, essentially. This is interesting. Now, Franklin Pierce issued a number, I think over 50 executive orders. But uh, when you get to the Lincoln administration, you see more. And then you start seeing this really ramp up when you get to the late 19th century. There's a reason for that. It's because Congress was punting almost all of its responsibility to the executive branch. They stopped legislating. And so when they stopped legislating, the executive branch now had to legislate. Even when you look at the budgeting process today, the Congress doesn't create a budget. The president does. The president submits the budget. The Office of Management and Budget submits a budget. And then the the Congress works off of the president's budget. There's no budget that comes out of Congress. They don't create their own budget, but this is exactly what should be happening. They are the branch of government that controls the purse. They control taxation. They control spending. This is exactly how the Constitution was sold to the states in 1787 and 1788. My originalist papers class is going to get into this, a lot of it, right? So we've got all these things happening now that are completely alien to original intent of the Constitution. The Constitution is worthless, by the way. It is a worthless document in 2021. It means nothing except how we can twist these things around. So we've got the Democrats now embracing the imperial presidency. Of course, Arthur Schlesinger, for example, the court historian, wrote a very famous book, The Imperial Presidency, where he ripped apart this idea of an overpowerful executive branch. You have some people on the progressive left that are starting to think, wait a second here. You know, we may not win every election. We got to be pretty careful about how this happens because what happens if the right gets back into power and they just completely go crazy? Well, of course, they've got their media allies to just completely sabotage anything that happens. I mean, this is Trump was fighting the left. He was fighting the Democrats in Congress and the leftist media the entire time he was office. He couldn't even turn around without them calling him some kind of name or doing something. Of course, Trump brought some of this. He, He tried to play their game by getting on Twitter and all these other things instead of just doing what he had to do and just ignoring them. But this is the, and of course, people loved it when he called them out. You're fake news, you're stupid, you're worthless, all these things. People love that kind of stuff because they're tired of being called names themselves. But the fact is, you know, the the right would have such a hard time doing these things. The left is just getting a pass on it because it's stuff that the media wants. They think that they're doing a great service to America. These executive orders are helping America. So we've got that issue. The imperial presidency. At the same time, back in the 1950s and 60s, you had the right 
of course, railing against the court system. Now, this has been going on. They still rail against the court system, but you don't hear much about it right now. Why? Because the right believes they have a 6-3 to three majority on the Supreme Court. They think they've got six seats locked up, and no matter what happens, they're going to win if anything goes to the Supreme Court. So what you're starting to see now are some challenges issued against critical race theory. You've got a very uh, an interesting uh, coalition developing trying to sue in federal court that critical race theory violates the Civil Rights Acts of 1964. And um, this is the, the point of that is to try to use the federal courts, which Trump was very good at getting at least you know nominally conservative judges, even in the lower courts. Mitch McConnell was a pro at filling up all of these vacancies that Obama left. Mr. McConnell says, we'll fill them. And they started filling them with Republicans, so th- or cons- quote-unquote conservatives, whatever you want to say. Generally, Federalist Society judges who aren't always good on everything. But regardless, you've got now the right thinking they control the federal judiciary. So what they're hoping to do is have the left go nuts, issue all these executive orders, and just tie everything up in court. It's already happened. The, one of the Biden executive orders having to do with immigration has been tied up now in federal court. So that was knocked down. Heard, you didn't hear much about it in the media because if that was Trump, when Trump did it, of course, that's all it's front page. Federal court rules this unconstitutional. Federal court blocks this. Federal court issues injunction. Of course, Biden issues something to federal court. Ah, oh, did this, but we're not going to say much about it. Right? So we've got the federal courts now tying up the left. And this is exactly what the right wants to happen. So, but in the 1950s and 60s, it was the other way around. You had generally more conservative legislation getting crushed by the federal court system in the 50s and 60s, and so into the 70s. And so the conservative side of American politics was wanting to just rein in the court, get rid of them, take out their power. And there was a very interesting book written in 1958 by a woman named Rosalie Gordon. Rosalie Gordon was from New York, and uh, she died in 2020. I'm pretty sure she died in April of 2020. She was 98 years old, uh, but died in, uh, in, you know, in the spring of 2020. Rosalie Gordon, she, was, uh, she liked uh, John Flynn, who uh, John Flynn was, wrote uh, some very good books, critical of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, some really good stuff. And she liked James J. Kilpatrick's The Sovereign States, which uh, James J. Kilpatrick, if you took my Southern Cultural Intellectual History series, you should. If you haven't taken that, you should. When you get to the section on the 1950s, I talk about James J. Kilpatrick and how important he was for the conservative opposition in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, he was a pretty prominent figure. In fact, he was parodied on Saturday Night Live. But here's a guy who wrote a book entitled The Sovereign States where he talked about nullification. And so Rosalie Gordon wrote this book in 1958, critical of the Supreme Court, and she offered some solutions in her mind that would solve many of the problems for the Supreme Court. It was entitled Nine Men Against America, the Supreme Court and its Attack on American Liberties. There's also another very good book that's uh, you know, critical of the... Oh, he's written several books critical of, of course, Raoul Berger, who's often you know, demonized by the left as a guy being, well, he's against... This guy is against... Uh, the uh, the Brown v. Board of Education decision. He thought it was a bad decision. Whatever the whatever the case may be, 
Uh, so he's often excoriated by the left for being, you know, a, a bad guy. But Rosalie Gordon wrote this book, and she offered. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty interesting book. It's a little bit choppy at times. The the prose is not the easiest to get through. But she she offered in her mind, some solutions to turn the tide. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, one of the major critiques of American society is that it was opening the door to a communist insurgency. Now, you think about this now, Bernie Sanders runs around openly calling themselves a socialist. So does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You have these individuals in Congress who are openly saying, I'm a socialist. In the 1950s, this would, I mean, to say that would have, gotten you, uh, you know, an investigation by the FBI. And so Rosalie Gordon is pushing an agenda to try to get the socialists out of government. Let's call it, I mean, this is dangerous. This is, this is uh, Ronald Reagan during the Goldwater campaign in 64, warning against the influence of socialism in America. Of course, it's here to stay now. I mean, we've got it. And it's, you've got people, it's okay to run around with a, with a hammer and sickle, a Soviet flag, a, a, a state that committed genocide on a regular basis. But because it's hip. It's hip to be a Soviet. It's okay to be an Antifa and run around and bust into police buildings and do all kinds of horrible things. That's okay. But if you're on the right and you do anything like that, well, I mean, you are an insurrectionist. You're committing some type of horrible crime in America. And this is the inconsistency that we have. None of that's okay, right? I mean, none of it's okay. Uh, my whole position, this entire thinking locally and acting locally, is generally about a peaceful discussion on how to rein in unconstitutional government through political action, and also by ignoring it. But I like this particular chapter, chapter 24 in this book, To Turn the Tide, because she offers some solutions. One of the things I did in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America is I offered some, some constitutional amendments to try to rein in the executive branch. Nobody's going to do this stuff. But, I, I mean, the publisher said, you can't just have it be all bad. Try to have something that would be, give us some hope. I have no hope that the executive branch is ever going to be reformed. In fact, it's only going to get worse. And I think that in so many ways, the founding generation, Alexander Hamilton, as much as I don't like Hamilton, he was, he was prescient in understanding that, look, we're going to get an elected king. Might as well just go to it right now. It's going to happen. It might take time. And it has taken time. We didn't get an elected king right away. It took nearly 80 years to start seeing it with Lincoln. And even then, Lincoln was nowhere near as abusive as some of the other people that followed him into the 20th century and 21st century. But we've gotten it. It's taken 200 years to get an elected king. Joe Biden, as I've said on social media, is the most weak-minded and boring elected king in the history of the world. But we have one. We have an elected king. He's feeble. And he's simply doing whatever his constituents on the progressive left want him to do. He's an empty suit, but certainly we have an elected king. And in so many ways, this is what the right wanted out of Donald Trump. It's what the left wanted out of Barack Obama. It's what they want. So George Mason warned against it, too. We don't need an elected king. Don't create this executive branch because we're going to get an elected king. But we've also got the nine men, or nine men and women now, who rule America the federal judges on the Supreme Court, or if you want to just branch that out and say all these other federal judges, this is also a problem. 
So Rosalie Gordon offered some solutions to the court, the federal court system. One was that they have term limits, four, six, or ten years. Supreme Courts get judges get term limits. Well, her reasoning is that you're never going to get rid of these people. The impeachment process is a joke. We can't impeach federal judges anymore. It's a joke. Once Samuel Chase was not impeached, John Marshall knew back in the early 19th century that there was no way they were going to get rid of any Supreme Court justice, no matter what they did. Samuel Chase was the most obnoxious judge, federal judge, we had. I mean, the guy wasn't even allowing the political opposition to present their case, and yet we couldn't get rid of that guy. So guess what? We're never getting rid of a partisan judge on the federal bench. It's never going to happen. So having term limits. Well, the left right now will be all over this. Yeah, let's have term limits. We can get rid of Clarence Thomas and John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito. We can get rid of these guys. They're gone. They'd be all over it right now. What they're not all over is reigning in the executive branch, but they'd be all over cutting the power of the courts. I mean, they're talking about court packing and everything else. In this particular book, she mentions packing the court. She uses a term in the way the left has kind of used it here recently, which is putting ideological partisans on the bench. This is how Kamala Harris defined it. In the debates, well, you're packing the court with Republicans. That's not packing the court, but this is how Rosalie Gordon kind of used the, the term in a way. So you got to have term limits. The second was that the Senate reconfirms judges at intervals. So just because a person gets on there and uh, they're there doesn't mean they don't have to go through another confirmation process. Maybe they're out. Maybe they're out obnoxious and they're doing horrible things, and so reconfirm them. Now, this would certainly be used for partisan purposes. There's no doubt about it. And uh, on the other hand, the establishment is going to rally around itself. For example, could you see? Ruth Bader Ginsburg being knocked out, even if she would, the Republicans would never do it. The Democrats would. The Democrats would certainly take out uh, Clarence Thomas if they could. They'd take him off the bench. They'd get rid of Samuel Alito. They'd do it. The Republicans, though, would never get rid of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They wouldn't do it. They don't have the spine to do it. So this works great for the left. One thing you can say about the left is they will always do what they say they're going to do. The, the Republicans never do that. This is why the Republican Party is the stupid party. They'll never do it. So the left would certainly love to get rid of Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito or Neil Gorsuch or uh, Kavanaugh or any of them. Barrett, they'd get rid of any of them. They'd, they would get them off the bench in a heartbeat if they could. The right, though, they would never get rid of these leftist judges. They would never do it because that, well, I mean, we have to defer to the to the approval process from previous Congresses. And this is destructive. This is dangerous, unstable. So this one is, you know, I think a dead letter in many ways. Her other proposal, that at least one of each two successive nominees to the court should have, it, have had 10 years of judicial experience. Now, John Stennis, John Stennis, who was from uh, Mississippi, proposed it. And it stems, she says, it stems from a startling discovery which the senator made that since 1932, the court has departed on 35 occasions from decisions previously rendered, whereas there had only been 29 such reversals in the history of the court before 1932. In other words, in 143 years of its history, the court reversed previous decisions only 29 times. 
But in just the last 25 years, it has reversed previous decisions 35 times. So how many times are we doing this now? I mean, this is in 1958. I don't know what the number is in the last, you know, 60 years. How has this happened since in the last 60 years? But what they're saying here is the court is undoing previous law at a record pace, at a rapid pace in 1958. Her fourth proposal was that the president be deprived of the power of federal court appointments entirely and that the Senate should elect all federal judges. She says, well, look, what's the difference? I mean, we've gotten bad appointments from all these other presidents. Would the Senate do any worse? Would they do any worse? I mean, could it be any worse than it is now? She says the major effect of these proposals would take the judges out of the privileged class in which they are answerable to no one and place them where they belong as the public servants of a federal republic. They would be answerable to the representatives of the sovereign states, without which states there would be no federal republic and no Supreme Court. She says, as to Senator Senes's proposal, at least one of the at each two successive nominees to the court should have at least 10 years of previous judicial experience. No one who has read thus far in this book could doubt the necessity for such a reform. If we apply some such rule to the members of the Supreme Court appointed since 1937, when packing began, we can see how far short they fell on judicial experience. There have been 17 appointments since that time, including the Eisenhower appointment, appointees as of this writing. Their total previous judicial experience amounts to 37 and a half years. And that includes Justice Black's 18 months as a police court judge and Justice Murphy's service on a court recorder's court. If we assume that each should have at least 10 years of previous experience, a total of 170 years, we can see that the last 17 justices have fallen short of that, of that logical minimum by 132 years. In fact, it was seen that Senator Stennis' proposal does not go quite far enough, that all justices should be required to have had considerable previous judicial experience or that the uh, exception should at least be highly eminent, author, highly eminent authorities on constitutional law. Now, of course, this runs into an issue now, if you're looking at this. Barack Obama was supposed to, supposedly an authority on constitutional law. He wasn't, but he's supposed to be an authority on that. And she also says that this, this uh, experience should have been on the highest courts of the states. She says, many careful observers of our federal courts are of the opinion that they have reached their lowest level in recent years because of the long tenure in office of New Deal, Fair Deal, modern Republican presidents. Certainly during the Roosevelt-Truman regimes, many appointments to federal judgeships were made without regard to quality and chiefly on the basis of political expediency and reward. Appointments or elections to Supreme or Appellate Courts in the states, on the other hand, generally go to men who have gained a well-earned reputation for legal and judicial sagacity among people who are able to watch them closely. So these are interesting suggestions. And later in this chapter, she brings up nullification. She says, look, if this all fails, I mean, we got to have nullification. The real problem is that the states should just, they're following, when the court makes an opinion, they're just following suit. She said the real issue should just be the states ignore these things. We should just go into nullification and they don't enforce these edicts that come from the Supreme Court. And she even cites 
the Virginia Declaration of 1798, in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of other powers not granted by the said compact, the states where a party is there too have the right and are in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil and for maintaining within their respective limits the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them. And she says, you know, the states have the ability to amend the Constitution, three-quarters of which the states themselves can do it. She talks about how Congress could cut the power of the federal courts. All of this. They could make regulations to cut the power of the courts. This has been something I've said for years. Congress could abolish the Ninth Circuit if they wanted to. They could, re- they could just redo the entire federal court system and make it to where these federal judges are almost irrelevant. But they won't, and they won't. Right now, I mean, the Congress, look, right now they might do it because at this point you've got the Democrats controlling the Congress. So they might. I mean, this is something that could be on the agenda. I think that they're seriously going to consider adding seats to the Supreme Court, depending on what the court does. One thing I will say is I'm not so certain the court's going to do much because there's that palpable fear of if they go too hard right, well, then they're just going to pack the court, you see. So just the threat of packing the court, I think, is going to keep the, the Supreme Court in line with a much more leftist agenda. She also has, at the end of this chapter, she says, there is one final proposal to reverse the usurpations of the Supreme Court. It was made by the well-known writer and commentator John T. Flynn. Aside from immediate congressional action as outlined above, it would seem to be a necessary prerequisite to all of the reforms of the court. It is that all decisions of the Supreme Court from 1937 to the date of the adoption of this proposal should be declared to have no force and effect as precedents in judicial or other proceedings in determining the meaning of the words, sections, and provisions of the Constitution. So essentially what they would do is undo all of the decisions from 1937 to the point of that proposal. So now, I mean, you're looking at like 80 years undoing all that stuff. She says this proposal, of course, will require a constitutional amendment. Once again, do not despair. The amendment process seems a long one. Passage by two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-fourths of the states. We have amended the Constitution 22 times since its adoption, in some instances with a good deal of speed and in many cases on questions of relatively minor importance compared with the overwhelming urgency of the one which now faces us. Nowhere, at no time in our history, as we contemplate the Supreme Court and its attack on our liberties, do the words of Edmund Burke have a greater meaning for us. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil evil is that good men do nothing. So this is interesting. I mean, we've got in the 1950s and 60s, you had the right looking at trying to take down the power of the federal court system. Now it's the left that wants to do it. In the 1950s and 60s, the right was certainly in line with the strong executive branch. Now, of course, they want to, uh, now the, the left wants to keep the strong executive branch because they're in office. I mean, all what goes around comes around. I think that's one of the things that I want to emphasize in this particular lecture, and but or this podcast. But more importantly, this all comes down to think locally, act locally. When, when Gordon brings up nullification, well, I mean, this is the path forward. Who cares about the federal courts? Who cares about what the executive branch is doing? If states and local communities would start saying, you know, we're just ignoring that in our community. We're just not going to do it anymore. You would see some changes. I mean, this has happened in certain areas, certain 
uh, federal regulations and laws have been ignored for years in many states. Why not do it in every state? Why not start having the states, which are the fourth leg of the stool of the entire governing process of the United States, start reasserting their authority, the people of the states, and start knocking these things down? And this works left and right. I mean, it works for everybody, right? This is not a leftist position or a rightist position. This is, this is an American position. Nullification, that idea goes all the way back to the middle of the 18th century in the Stamp Act crisis. That's when we start seeing it used for the first time. So, look, I think that overall, any proposal we have to rein in the power of the executive branch, one thing I did, or the judicial branch is great, one thing I did mention, though, is that Congress, at the beginning of this, Congress is at the heart of all of this, because Congress is the, is the entity that could control everything here. They could stop punting responsibility to the executive branch. They could rein in the judicial branch. They could make that branch almost worthless. They could do all of this. But you see, Congress won't do that, and Congress won't do it because they don't want the responsibility. They want to shield themselves and stay in in office. This is the political class wanting to keep their own power. This is why in 1994, when you had the Republicans running around talking about term limits, once they got in office, didn't hear much about that anymore. A little bit, but for the most part, it was a dead letter. Done. You didn't hear much about it. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.